Hello and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals podcast, the podcast hosted by me, Eric Mahan, someone who has worked in the environmental slash animal field for a little over a decade now. If this is your first time tuning in, what this podcast is all about, of course, is environmental things and of course, animal things as well. So if this is your first time tuning in, thank you guys so much for giving this a listening and for anyone returning, welcome back. So why don't we get started with some of the environmental news stories that came out within the last week. First up, scientists have recorded the first known case of a virgin birth in a female crocodile. Now, this female had not had contact with a male for about 16 years, as well as when the babies were born, they did do genetic testing and identified that the DNA was 99.9% identical, meaning that this obviously was not a case of sperm retention, which happens in reptiles, although 16 years would have been a milestone. For the most part, they've seen it in like rattlesnakes and other reptiles for about a year where the female will be with a male, but then won't go into producing offspring for about a year. So 16 years is a little bit longer than they've seen, but that's why they do the genetic testing. Now, this is the first time they ever saw it in a crocodile. They've seen this kind of, as they call, virgin births in birds, fish, lizards, and of course, snakes. And it's just a really cool survival method for these animals. And just really cool to find out that crocodiles can do it as well. Or I guess in this case, not do it. This American crocodile was taken in captivity in 2002 when she was about two years old and placed in an enclosure in Costa Rica. She remained alone there for the next 16 years, which, I mean, crocodiles aren't the most social creatures, so she's probably doing fine. But in January 2018, zookeepers discovered a clutch of 14 eggs in the enclosure, which is not the craziest thing. Animals will just lay eggs sometimes, whether they are fertile or not. But the zoo decided to try and incubate them and see if anything were to happen and lo and behold out popped basically a bunch of little mini croc clones now this is the same thing that has been discovered in a multitude of other animals like i said for example it has been discovered in komodo dragons where same thing as the croc in captivity a female laid a bunch of eggs and keepers were curious to see if anything happened and well they made little komodo clones as well like i said it's a clone because it's almost 100% genetically identical, and just some cool new science out there to show how crazy and interesting nature and survival can be for a multitude of species. Next up, we have a wolverine was spotted in Sierra Nevada. Now, this is a big news story because this is the third time this wolverine has been spotted this year, but This is only the second time a wolverine has been spotted in this area in the last 100 years. While wolverines are native to California, they have been essentially extinct in the state since 1920s, likely the result of hunting and trapping due to the decades of people over there during the gold rush trying to make some extra money on the side with the fur trade. Now, the previous wolverine that was spotted in the state was during 2008 to 2018, being in the Tahoe region. The rangers in the area do state that this wolverine that is spotted 
today is most likely not the same wolverine being that they only live to about 12 to 13 years so this new wolverine that was spotted seems to be a young male seeking a mate the animal was spotted multiple times in a number of different forests and they are able to confirm it is the same wolverine and they're thinking that the male wolverine is walking around for his huge territory due to trying to find a female they also think that due to the winter's heavy snowfall in the west may have created a habitat bridge for this wolverine so this wolverine could come from the rockies the cascade mountains or even possibly as far as Canada or Alaska looking for territory. Now, wolverines are the largest terrestrial mammal of the weasel family and is listed as threatened under the California Endangered Species Act. Scientists are hoping that they will be able to collect some of the wolverine's hair or scat for genetic testing to figure out exactly where this wolverine may have originated from. But wherever he came from it's sure glad to see that they are moving back into the california area and then finally financial investments for reforestation shows returns in latin america so the idea behind this is these two countries costa rica and guatemala governments are starting to do financial incentives for reforestation and for landowners that actually actively help protect the forest The idea behind the investments is that they would create a financial or monetary value on people keeping the rainforest, well, a rainforest, and is hoping to push all of their people that instead of like clear cutting it for farming or whatever, just leaving it as a forest and making sure nothing happens to it is just as financially incentivizing. So how does this work? Well, in Costa Rica, the... Payment for Environmental Service Group, or PES, allocated between 20 to 25 million annually for this kind of project. And the money is coming from a governmental tax on the fossil fuel industry as well as the water usage fees. So it's coming from taxes that are coming from areas of their industry down there that are actively being negatively impacting the environment so it's kind of like taking the money that is being produced for this kind of stuff and going back into the environment which is pretty cool i gotta say so with this they are able to protect 1.3 million hectares of forests and about 19,000 contracts are currently held with land holders now guatemala has similar programs as well one with 6000 landholders and another one with 54000 landholders now the unique thing about this second one with the 54000 landholders is that the people that are currently living on that land do not need to show proof of ownership of the land because unfortunately in that region due to number of people fleeing from hostile areas that kind of documentation is hard to come by and can take years and years to get formal documentation from, which means that during that time, they may decide to destroy the habitat so that they can actually make some money on it. So allowing the people, even without the proper documentation, to get funding to keep the rainforest, well, a rainforest, because they are actively living there still, that it helps save a lot of wildlife and rainforest that would have got bogged down with a bunch of red tape and documentation 
that many people don't have years to wait to get that financial surplus and would have taken matters into their own hands, like burning it down and turning it into a beef cattle ranch, for example. And this incentive can have landholders with contracts up to five to 10 years and can pay up to $380 per hectare, which definitely incentivizes the people to just leave the rainforest as rainforest, not chop it down for farming or whatever else. Now, this kind of incentivizing is nothing new for environmentalists because there have been some specifics for individual animals. This is kind of the first one I've heard of that is incentivizing to protect the whole ecosystem. But one that I've known for a while is the Northern Jaguar Project, for example. And that project is kind of similar, but a little different, which is they basically pay for jaguars spotted on ranchers' lands in northern Mexico. Sort of like giving the ranchers rent for the jaguars being there. Also, if the tenants or jaguars at this point turn out to be doing something bad, like possibly snacking on some of the ranchers' livestock, the ranchers will actually then get compensated by this organization so no longer is this animal in these areas seen as a possible negative income, but only positive income. And it seems a little weird and it seems, you know, some people will argue, oh, well, we shouldn't put financial labels on these animals because how can you truly put them into a financial category? We should just be able to save them. But unfortunately for a lot of people that live in certain areas, It's hard to think about the future when you're just trying to put food on your table. So these kind of organizations can break the stereotypes of this animal or this land needs to be terraformed or conformed into a way that suits my needs and breaks down what can be generations of thoughts from fathers to sons or mothers to daughters or whatever about, oh, these animals are bad, they're killing livestock and we need money and changes the thought process in the newer generations of how important these animals are financially gives them a chance to look at them in a different view not as a negative and that's the only thing they see but as a true positive they are for the environment and that is your environmental news so for today's featured species i thought to myself why not switch it up a little bit today because i want to talk to you guys about for the most part on this podcast, endangered animals or animals that may be doing okay but have the potential to become under threat for a wide variety of reasons. So, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting to talk about an animal that is not endangered but considered an environmental problem? A species that was introduced in locations in the world that it should not be. And The species I want to talk to you guys about today is the invasive Eurasian carp. So since this animal is a bit different, we will talk about it in terms of its native area for the majority of this. But instead of the conservation kind of part that I have at the end a lot of time, we will be talking about why this animal is invasive and what it means for the environment that it's invasive at. So a little bit different, but... I thought it would be fun to kind of switch it up. Anyway, the Eurasian carp is also known as the Asian carp or the common carp. Their natural range is in a wide variety of rivers and lakes in both Europe and Asia. 
They will sometimes also enter marsh areas, so they can survive kind of brackish water or aka slightly salty, but not salty enough to be considered salt water. But yeah, so they they can live in a wide variety of habitats, but for the most part, they are a large freshwater fish. In fact, carp in general are the largest member of the minnow family. And the common carp is definitely a good example of how big carps can be. Common carp generally grow to about 30 inches or 76.2 centimeters and on average can weigh 10 to 15 pounds or about 4.5 to 6.8 kilograms. But they have had actual records hitting 60 pounds or 27.2 kilograms. Common carp also can live about 9 to 15 years, but once again, they do have some outliers and some have been known to live 20 years plus. As for what they look like, Carp are broad, large-bodied fish with a long dorsal fin that extends along most of its back and a forked tail fin. Males and females look very similar, except males have a slightly larger ventral fin. A typical carp is about an olive-brown color to reddish-brown with a kind of a yellow belly color to it. But its scales are normally also very large and very thick. They also have two barbels, which are kind of the whisker-like sensory organs that appear at the corners of their mouth. On carp, they are fairly small, but on other fish, barbels can be quite long. For example, catfish, their barbels are so long that people think that they look like whiskers. But what barbels are, especially for carp, is that they are a sensory organ to help figure out where food is. And for the carp, they don't have to be very long due to how it feeds. Carp are omnivorous but feed primarily on plants. Adult carp feed on a variety of organisms as well, including aquatic plants, seeds, insect, crustaceans, mollusks, and fish eggs. Carp feed by sucking up mud from the bottom and then spitting it back out and feeding on the particles while they are suspended. So the barbels help direct their mouth on where the food pieces are in the mud but they don't need anything too long because, well, their face is kind of buried in the mud. If they had long kind of cat-like barbels to them, they would just kind of get in the way and not be very effective. They really just need something just a little bit to give them a little bit kind of a metal detector feel, but not too much. Also, fun fact is if you're in a region that do have carp, you can normally tell where their favorite feeding areas are because it is easily recognized as depressions in the sediment because, well, they're stirring everything up and they're kind of digging away, so there's kind of little divots where the carp eat. Now, all this mud sucking does create some murky water and can lead to them tearing up aquatic plants. Luckily, as long as they don't get too overpopulated, it's not too destructive to the environment. Wink, wink, we will come back to that fact a little later. In their natural habitat, they are just part of the circle of life and are both predator to a wide variety of the small crustaceans and eggs found in the mud, but also prey to a wide variety of different fish, birds, mammals, and really a large variety of things all over Europe and Asia and are considered prey both as an adult, as young, and even eggs as well, which normally there are a lot of. Spawning or Fish breeding generally occurs in the spring and early summer, where multiple males and females will come together to breed, with the strongest males pushing the weaker males to the outskirts of the giant gathering of fish. But 
with the lesser or weaker males still having the potential of passing on their genetics on kind of the outskirts of the big fish pile, so to speak, but just not having the best seats in the house. The female deposits her eggs onto underwater vegetation, which will adhere in clumps. A typical female common carp may produce up to 300,000 eggs over the breeding season, and eggs will take only roughly about four days till hatch. And then they are out on their own, hence why females lay so many eggs. Many don't reach adulthood in their native habitat, so throwing out just crap tons of babies means that there's a higher chance that at least one of them will succeed. They themselves will then become sexually mature in about three to five years, where they themselves will start producing up to 300,000 eggs a spawning season. A good thing for the wild range, devastator for any place that they were introduced to. In their natural habitat, the IUCN Red List has them listed as vulnerable population trend unknown. This is mainly due to pollution, overfishing, and the devastation of natural habitats, all kind of classic issues with many freshwater habitats around the world. But as I said before, this section will be a little bit different because these animals are found in a wide variety of areas outside their native range in which they are devastating these environments. Yes, in their native range, they need help, but outside of it, they are causing devastating effects on native fish, and other animals that call these rivers and lakes home. Now, the Carmen carp has been pretty much introduced in all parts of the world except the poles, and that is a lot to cover. So I decided why don't we focus in on my home area of North America since I know a little more about that than the rest of the world. Common carp became a prized sport fish and food fish in Europe and have been reared in ponds and fisheries in local waters. Fish from Western European were exported to North America, Australia, South Africa, and other countries in the 19th century. The earliest introduction to North America was the Hudson River in 1832, when a private individual stocked carp from France into the river. Now, carp introduced by private Individuals became fashionable, you know, the latest fashion, newest hats, newest trousers, and newest fish that you were introducing into the local environment, all the rage back in the 1870s and 1880s. And where the main mode of introduction came was in California and Oregon. However, major introductions of Carmen carp to the United States consisted of fish imported from Germany in 1877. Now, this was done by the United States Fish Commission. Now, this was because of the thought that there was a number of European fish like trout or, in this case, the carp, where they thought that introducing them to these native waterways were actually going to help native wildlife in that these fish were tastier, they could produce easier, and actually they thought that they had nothing that they would do that would actually affect the native wildlife in a negative manner. So they thought that there was no harm and that many sports fishermen would enjoy it and would leave a lot of the native fish alone. So they brought this in with kind of good intentions. And they started exporting just hundreds of thousands of carp all over the United States. Now, 
the U.S. Fish Commission stopped distributing common carp in 1896. By 1883, this fish was being caught by fishermen in the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River and were stocked all over Sacramento and the Columbia River of the West Coast. Common carp were initially imported because of the high expectations, as I said earlier, as an easily cultured food fish, which because of its herbivorous habitats and ability to thrive in conditions not suitable for many other fish, were expected to have little to no impact on native fish. But boy, were they wrong. By the 1890s, common carp had been widely distributed all over the eastern United States and were held accountable for the decline of many native fish populations. This fish was pretty much at this point reported everywhere in the United States except for the state of Alaska at this point in the 1890s. Not saying that this ecological disaster, by the way, was what made the independent agency of the United States Fish Commission all sudden merge and become part of the Department of Commerce and Labor, but it probably didn't help. And they realized that such an ecological problem that occurred with the comic carp needed a little more oversight, let's just say. But that's neither here nor there. Unfortunately, the common carp are here and they were being distributed by local individuals anyway. And it was not just the United States Fish Commission. The idea of them being a quick and easy thing for them to breed, to feed America, may have been a good thought back then. And they are still a very popular food in places around the world. However, in North America, many anglers don't consider it very edible or good eats within the main form of it being consumed being fried they have very tough skin and many small bones in it so most anglers just don't even want to go after them to eat them so yeah now we're stuck with a bunch of fish that nobody's eating and thanks to these reasons they brought them over of fast breeding and surviving everywhere they became like wildfire through our waterways i mean don't forget one female could produce up to three hundred thousand eggs a spawning season they produce fast they are big and because of that even fish in these new waterways that you would think would be able to eat them aren't used to them since they come from different regions of the world they're just don't know how to handle them and even they are getting pushed out of the areas due to the large schools of carp the carp are also very voracious eaters, eating up eggs of mussels and clams and ripping up and clearing out vegetation in the area, which including turning up the mud constantly, oxygen levels in these areas plummet and fish species get choked out, but not the carp because they can survive in this low oxygen water. Along with the addition of them eating eggs from mussels and clams and the constant upturning of water, the water becomes thick and sediment filled choking out even more species but once again not the carp who are designed to stay and thrive in these literal dead zones of habitat where the more and more it gets disgusting the more and more opportunity the carp has to take over it even affects animals above the water with the fish being gone and the vegetation in the rivers being devastated soil erosion increases ducks and other birds and mammals lose food and habitat so what are they doing in the united states at least to stop these invaders well a couple different things they're looking at potential control methods all across the united states from fish poisons physical barriers 
physical removal, habitat alteration, or the addition of predators, parasites, or pathogens. Really, they're trying to throw everything at this invasive carp to control it, which is kind of the key of figuring out how to eliminate the fish. While not hurting the beneficial native fish is the biggest goal. One method is using the electrical shock method, which we've talked about before, where scientists will send a certain amount of electrical shock into the water to stun all the fish. And then scientists can then net the bad carp that float up to the surface and the native not (laughs) invasive fish will slowly wake up and get on with their day. But you may be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what can I do myself? Well, for one, if you are a boater, minimize the use of locks in areas that you know that carp are found. Due to these locks where watercraft will travel in between when the lock is closed, it's a nice barrier to prevent carp from coming through. But if you're using locks constantly, well, then by opening the barrier, all of a sudden the floodgates open and the carp will travel through. Other things you can do is don't harvest bait or transport between waters of infested areas. Dispose of unwanted bait in the trash, not in bodies of water. Because a lot of bait in some of these areas are carp. Remember, they are part of the minnow family. And minnows are used a lot of time for bait. Also, you should never release fish from one water body to another. As well as making sure you just never use carp as bait in general is also probably good. Report catches of invasive carp to any of the local departments of natural resources because tracking the spread of carp gets them a chance to get ahead of it. Drain and rinse your boat out when you're done boating. And of course, spread the word. Get people to know about how there is invasive carp problems and have them learn these things or I guess tell them to listen to the podcast. That way they can figure out exactly what they shouldn't be doing so that they are not throwing more so-called fuel on the fire, and helping the common carp spread through our native waterways. Now, these are just some of the things to think about for the common carp, but you should also know that some of you may be holding on to a close cousin of the Asian carp in your own backyard and not even know it. Because, yup, koi are domesticated from common carp and have the same potential to be just as devastating to the environment in some of these areas. So if you do have koi in your backyard, just make sure that they stay in their very closed off from any body of water. Make sure if you have flooding in your backyard, the koi or potential eggs can't get washed into any sort of native body of water nearby. And of course, never release any sort of koi or in case you have common carp in your ponds as well into any sort of natural habitat. Just to be on the safe side also, If you can just not have koi in your backyard, that's also pretty good as well because we don't want koi to become like its devastating origin story, the ecologically important in its home range, but also super invasive and devastating common carp. that's it that is all about the common carp i have for you today i hope you enjoyed hearing about them and their complicated existence as always make sure to follow me on facebook twitter or tiktok pages for any additional content and news about the podcast as well as if you ever want to reach out for questions or anything like that you can always reach me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com thank you guys once again for listening so much 
I hope you enjoyed once again hearing about the complicated, still cool, but kind of devastating common carp. Thank you guys, and I'll see you all next time.